Welcome to Marvelicious Toys. Hosted by Justin and his amazing friends, Arnie and Marjorie. We bring you news and reviews of Marvel toys, statues, and more. Because not all Marvel collections can be bagged and boarded. They're not just toys. They're... Marvelicious. Welcome to issue 10 of Marvelicious Toys. I'm Marjorie. I'm Arnie. And I'm Justin. And we are here to turn the dark off for you. Marjorie and I took one for the team. Oh my god, yeah, I took one for the team, let me tell you. We went and saw Spider-Man turn off the dark and are going to be bringing you a very in-depth review this episode. But first, let's do a couple of quick hits and start with our... The Spectacular Store Report! Well, outside of just Thor stuff being everywhere, you know, I've seen some of the some of the other things that we don't necessarily buy that you guys saw at Toy Fair, like the new Spider-Man masks and the Captain America mask and all that good stuff. There's a neat Wolverine mask that I'm thinking about maybe picking up. <laughs> I thought the same thing. That Wolverine mask, it's such a bright yellow, but what would you do with it? When would you wear it? Maybe I don't want to know. Maybe when I'm driving. Maybe <laughs> only when I'm driving. You know, that'd be... <laughs> Hope it doesn't cut off your peripheral vision. <laughs> Marjorie found the Iron Man mask on clearance at Walmart, and uh, she wore it around the store for a while. I did. It was the child size, so it's kind of tight on my head. <laughs> nice. But yeah, other than that, you know, I saw the little nunchuck Spider-Man squeeze their legs together things, and they are what they are. But not a whole lot out there right now. And... We did see more of the Superhero Squad 3-packs that we talked about last show. Those are everywhere, too. They're usually with the Thor toys, even the new Iron Man packs, so check those out. I have to say that Detroit Steel is calling my name. Every time I look at those, I'm like, oh, he's he's cool. Kind of want him. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, seeing all that stuff and, and looking around and already having had Wave 1 for a while, the only thing that I really felt the need to pick up were the two deluxe figures that were sitting there. And, and even then, I struggled with it a little bit because both of them are just straight-up repaints of figures from Wave 1 already. So despite them being obvious repaints right there on the pegs, I decided... For you, our listeners, I'll take that hit, and I'll spend my $13, so maybe you don't have to on these. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is the the Blaster Armor Thor. Now, if anybody can explain to me without giving me the excuse that kids like things that fire, <laughs> why <laughs> Thor needs two things launched from his shoulders, I'll give you the figure. How's that? <laughs> you, can have, you can have Blaster Armor Thor for all your own. I have a feeling we will not be seeing this feature in the movie. <laughs> where Thor gets out the large shoulder-mounted ice cannons to take on the Frost Giants. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he's he's a complete repaint of the, the number one Thor, the sleeveless Thor. And, I mean, basically they gave him a gold chest and some gold gauntlets. But other than that, it's it's the same figure. I will say that the the skin tone, I don't know if it shows up in the pictures as well, but side by side, the skin tone on this one is a little bit a little bit more realistic. So I don't know if you're a real stickler for skin tone on your figures. Maybe you buy this one and pop the head off it and put it on your other one. But other than that, I can't see any reason for needing both of these. The golden color on him reminds me of like the yellow bumblebee from the vintage Transformers line. It is striking. I will say that it, it stood out on the shelf. You know, maybe it caught me in a moment of weakness. You know, it was a nice bright yellow just flashing at me. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, because you said you weren't going to buy this. I wasn't. I was not. And maybe I didn't have enough caffeine that day or something. And I was weak. And I was standing there looking at him like, well, I got nothing else to do with my money today, so I'll buy it. Okay, I have to nitpick his flesh coloring for just a minute because I can't tell if he's got really bad acne scars or if that's his beard. <laughs> I tell you what, I think that's the camera picking up details that the eye doesn't pick up because I noticed that after I took the pictures that his face looks really pockmarked. Yeah, it but does. Just, look, just looking at him in hand, you can't see any of that. So maybe I shouldn't take such close-up pictures of, of the poor figure. It makes him look like he got his face run over. <laughs> and his eyes are incredibly blue. And wonkily painted, it looks like. He has a few concussions under his belt. <laughs> he keeps hitting himself on the head with the hammer. <laughs> That's Ow, why he hope needs that doesn't the hurt extra. Again. Ow, hope that doesn't hurt anymore. He's like that one Ewok. <laughs> the bolo. So I think we've already said more about this guy than anybody else could possibly ever say about him. So. I, I will admit I, I have placed an order for him from HasbroToyShop.com. Not that I don't think I'm going to see him on shelves, but they had one figure I needed and... They also had some cute galactic heroes with Detroit steel. And so I'm like, you know, this stuff was retail. It was the same price that I'd seen the tags for at Target. And they didn't have the Frost Giant, but they had the Thor up at HasbroToyShop.com. So I'm like, kind of like you, moment of weakness. We want to combine shipping, add to cart. Yeah, in all honesty, it's I think the bigger thing is, is that I suspect this line won't stretch on as long as the Iron Man line did. So I don't think we're going to see you know, three and four waves of these deluxe figures. If we do, then that's where I'll stop buying them. But if there's only two or maybe two more after this, I'm all right with having a couple of them. And if they do more like this Frost Giant, which you're going to talk about next, I'd be all up for it because I'm looking at your pictures online and he looks even more bad than the first one. And I mean bad as in that Michael Jackson, good, bad, not like as in awful. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, he's he's a great figure. My only problem is going to be that it's the exact same thing as the other one. It is seriously a straight up repaint, same exact, you know, loincloth on him and everything. They didn't even re-sculpt that. It's just a darker blue. But since it is more expensive, what you get is... A whole bunch of more translucent little weapons to pop on him that you're never going to use. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, now he has two little like lobster claw frost things. <laughs> and one of them actually is a projectile launcher. So I'm telling you. He looks very awkward in battle because of his frozen over little hands. Like he's got <laughs> oven mitts on of ice. And he's like, can't pick it up. Hang on, hang on. You know, I do like that he comes with an ice axe instead of just an ice mace. Yeah, the mace and the launching projectile with a few different projectiles to pop out of them. Is all that stuff worth $6? I don't know. So Here's the thing I like about it, though, is they did repaint him. Honestly, they could have not repainted him, right? They could have just had him with extra accessories. I like the fact that I don't really army build these guys except for multiple man because I'm just have a disease. Because he's multiple man. But... <laughs> If I were, you know, to army build a bunch of these guys, I'd like having a couple different options so that it didn't look like they are all exactly the same. And yeah, it's the same mold, but the, I actually like the darker color a little bit better, too. I do, too. I think it's a little cooler. And it's nice to have different ones. Like, we haven't seen the movie yet, obviously, so maybe this guy is the leader of the Frost Giants, for all we know. Maybe he's the guy who's talking in the preview. It's neat that there's another one out there. But like I said, my only issue is the price. It's it's a cool figure, just as the first one was, and he look he looks less Navi-ish. So <laughs> agreed, and that's always a good thing. Always. But now, with that 
out of the way, why don't we get to our main event? So joining us now is Stuart. Hello, Stuart. Hey guys, what? Where am I? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know this show. <laughs> you kind of stepped over a boundary. You kind of crossed a very thin little white dashed line. You're now on Marvelicious Toys. It, it's it's kind of like Happy Days and Joni loves Chachi and Laverne and Shirley. You know, we all just kind of trade back and forth. It's a special guest appearance by Stuart. Ah, I see. And that's because we kidnapped you, took you to New York, and made you go see Spider-Man turn off. Wait, no, you are Stuart in L.A., and you intentionally flew to New York <laughs> just to see Spider-Man turn off the dark. That's more hardcore than us. We were in New York anyway for our Toy Fair coverage. Mm-hmm. No, I, yeah, I'm not going to cop to, you know, indignity about this sounded like a bad idea or anything. I couldn't wait to see the show. I was so afraid that this show would close before I had the opportunity to see it. And I blame everything on Carrie the Musical. Way back in the 80s, for three days, Broadway opened the Stephen King Carrie as a musical. And it is notoriously uh, Broadway's worst show ever produced. And I've been envious ever since then about wanting to be able to see Broadway's worst show and, and, and missing Carrie. And when I found out they were doing a Spider-Man musical and all of the problems that have been well publicized, I think, at this point. Uh, yes, I insisted on, on coming out and was happy to meet you guys in New York for this show. So why would you fly across the country and pay a ridiculous theater ticket price to see something you knew would be deliciously bad? Uh, doesn't that answer itself? Or maybe that, maybe that explains a lot about my taste that, you know, yes, I like culture. I like theater. I like good performances. I'm, I like a lot of drama. I don't like musicals a whole lot, but I'm always up for a good show. But just as entertaining, just as mesmerizing can be a show that makes spectacularly bad decisions. And I didn't think that Spider-Man would just be a dumb show in which... Oh, you know, this is a, a folly that why would a superhero sing and fly around? I really thought it had the ch opportunity to be bad and unique in creative ways. And I'm always there to celebrate, I guess you would call it artistic hubris. People that pretentiously try to push the boundaries and instead of having them expand, they snap into a million pieces. So what's Craven's new nightmare? Uh, yes, another perfect example of I applaud provocation. I like it when it works, and I like it even more when it doesn't work. I, I love it when people try new things. And Julie Taymor is from experimental theater. I mean, the director of the show got the job because she has her name on the most successful Broadway production of many, many years, and that's The Lion King. But by and large, when you look at the rest of her resume, she doesn't make big, splashy musicals. She makes eccentric, weird, quirky, Shakespeare, Greek myth, violent, gory theater shows and movies. And she is not at all the obvious choice for making a Spider-Man musical. The only reason you would hire her to make a Spider-Man musical is that you wanted her to make something as successful as The Lion King. And I want to say, I went into this with an open mind. I had heard the bad things, but most of them was from theater critics. And I heard that the little survey forms from just audiences were fairly positive. And I have to say, I somehow got the unenviable school duty task of gathering a stack of these surveys. And unethical as I am, I peeked some looks <laughs> at other people. It got quite a few good marks. People were scribbling, act one, very good. Act two, good. 
I don't know who these people are or if I judge their opinions on anything. <laughs> was it the Russians next to us? I don't know who it was. Because they was... might not have understood the language. But I really went in with an open mind. I did not come into this thinking I'm going to bash it. And I said going in, I want this to either be really good and I want to just be whisked away into a grand Broadway experience stunt show or – I want it to be really bad. Now, I think that we need to throw it out there that this was my first Broadway musical ever, Broadway show, period, lest people think this is just something turning into Broadway geekiness. And yeah, we have been to New York together five times. I went one other time alone. I had never felt the allure of Broadway. I mean, what am I going to go see Wicked? So yeah. I, I like Phantom of the Opera. I've listened to Cats, you know, maybe some Rodgers and Hammerstein in my background, but I've never gone to see a Broadway show beyond a touring company that came locally and was far, far cheaper. So it was only Spider-Man and the debacle surrounding it that got us to shell out three figures per ticket. And I'd also like to point out that you guys have a history of loving things that are deliciously bad. Absolutely. I there's I cannot deny that or, or advocate that enough. I mean, it, if, if Spider-Man had been brilliant, I would have been disappointed. <laughs> I wanted to see something that was not just bad, but awful. The worst. I wanted to see the worst that Broadway could do. And I'm not sure that I got that, but King... <laughs> perilously close at times. I think I'm the opposite than you guys. I, I see a lot. Every time I go to New York, I always see Broadway shows, but not so much the musicals. And I do want to make the distinguish that there's a lot of great stuff on Broadway that isn't wicked, that isn't the musical theater tradition, that drama. That That's usually what I go for. Uh, I think I've seen exactly one other Broadway musical cabaret, and that was mostly because I wanted to see the old Studio 54 digs, which is where they staged it. But I, I'm not... A musical fan, but definitely a theater fan. I've also seen other Julie Taymor productions. I've seen her production of Lion King. It is a spectacle, and some of it is very impressive. I'm not so taken with Disney or, or that particular movie or show, but I, I thought they did an impressive job staging it. And I, she also staged, not surprisingly, the most expensive opera ever mounted in Los Angeles based on Beowulf. It was Grendel, and I went to see that just because it was this notoriously expensive, extravagant production that kept breaking and uh well you're you're gonna see that trend happening maybe with lots of her work she she aims for the ceiling and she really wants to hit it out of the park every time she really tries to give audiences something they've never seen before well all i know about the lion king other than having seen the movie once and that that musical is certainly not aimed at me when we were in new york this last time i saw a subway ad for it and saw people with ridiculous hats of lion faces and i'm just like oh boy i could not keep a straight face if I was trying to watch that. Yes. I think what you could credit Julie Taymor for doing is that she moved away from some of the animal conceptions that Disney company came up with and returned it more to uh, African masks. It felt, uh, dare I use the word authentic, but it felt authentically African and native and that there are a lot of little neat moments where like they rig an elephant to come out. And even though you can tell that it's artificial, I mean, at no point do you actually think, wow, that's a really an elephant on stage. 
stage. There's something really beautiful about the way that she stages it. There are other times, though, you're absolutely right, particularly when characters are talking and singing, where I'm like, I can't take this man seriously. He's got a lion head on his on the top <laughs> of his head. And I, I just, I, I can't take that seriously. And yes, it is not a show meant for me. I took my young niece. It was a family event. I did not go by my own volition. But I can admire her as someone who is very talented with masks, with uh, making extravagant theatrical experiences. I did not, in Lion King, see any opportunity for her to be a writer or to expand what had already been done in the movie. She was simply there as a technician, and for that, it worked. Spider-Man, she plays a very different role here. She wrote the book of this. She is the creator of the show. Lion King, we, it has a storyline. The music was already in place, Elton John. It was already done. All they had to do was just figure out how to put it on the stage. Here, she started with a blank page and thousands and thousands and thousands of different iterations of Spider-Man throughout the comic. She had to pull together her own vision. And being a Spider-Man fan, I mean, he was my first real superhero that I grew up with. I mean, number one, he was the one I watched the cartoons for the longest. He's the one who I collected the most comics of. I probably would have seen this even if it weren't a huge debacle. This probably would have been what popped my Broadway cherry. But the debacle made it so much more delightful because I, like you, was afraid that I would never see it. And I bought a number of souvenirs at the show. I bought a shirt and a couple of magnets just because, you know, it already ran out of money once. The original premiere, they ran out of funding. And I'm like, this could be a very short-lived thing. And I want some memento that says I was one of the few who actually went and saw it during its limited run. And we have to say, we didn't see it open. They kept delaying the opening. We saw it on February 11th. It was supposed to have opened on February 7th, and then they pushed it back yet again to March 15th. And the latest news as of this recording is that they're possibly bringing a writer in to rewrite the book that Julie Taymor wrote. <laughs> I don't know why they would think of doing that. <laughs> the show felt very close to done. I will say that. Uh, as much as news has been made about people falling from the sky and problems with coherence, the, the production we saw was the week that it was actually scheduled to open. And I think that they are very close to being done with this show, which is not to say that it is a very polished show, just that I feel like I'm not sure where they could make changes in the script that are really going to make a difference with the problems that are inherent with the show. But is it just the script, Stuart? Now, come on. In the first 20 seconds, the three of us were giggling like somebody just said wiener. <laughs> uh, you know, I, we were primed for it, right? I mean, like we couldn't wait. You know, we were we were definitely in the mood to uh, experience an extravagant show. That said, yes, the opening is puzzling. the The attempt that's made here is to try and make a, almost like a pop up comic book that things are two dimensional and flat, and sometimes there are cardboard monsters and villains that pop out uh, to do things, and they interact with the flesh and blood three-dimensional people on stage. Uh, a curious choice on the part of Julie Taymor to try and bring a comic book to life in such a way. But yes, it's absurd the way that the Green Goblin first makes the appearance as a billboard snipping the wire that holds Mary Jane on the Brooklyn Bridge. I actually want to give some credit to the art direction in the living comic book. 
it's very stylized, but I liked the look that they gave it. I liked the backdrops that had all these buildings in this very askewed kind of style and the fact that so many of the props – I mean there's a scene where Peter Parker's laying in his bed and the bed is all trapezoidal and supposed to be like how a drawing would be. That actually worked for me. It's one of the few things of this show that did work for me were the backdrops and the set pieces. Now, the, the giant cardboard green goblin and – there's one scene where a giant cardboard baby falls in slow motion until an even gianter <laughs> cardboard Spider-Man comes out and catches it. And it, it, it looked like a high school production. And I was laughing so hard I couldn't catch my breath for about three minutes. You weren't the only one. <laughs> that was terrible. I found the set design to be really unsettling. And it really just made me nervous the way everything was angular. And I felt that they made it too cartoony it was like if your grandma decided to try to make you a spider-man cake for your birthday and be all hip and down with you and this is what happened you know i I get what they're trying to do but i just think they did it too comically and i didn't care for it marjorie i think you're really tipping on, on something that i didn't feel necessarily so much about the set design as i did about the whole production and that is this is somebody's mom trying to sift through spider-man comics and find something that she cares about and julie Taymor, the problem i have with the whole production is she took this job for the paycheck it is very evident to me she doesn't understand Spider-Man. She doesn't like Spider-Man. She didn't want to tell a story about Spider-Man. No, <laughs> she wanted to do a story about Greek mythology and the origins of the spider in Arachne, the woman, the weaver who was turned by the gods into the very first spider. These are all major plot points in Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, and it is where Julie Tamor is preoccupied. She doesn't give a crap about this Spider-Man character. And in many ways, sometimes I feel like she's demeaning to him. You know, what I said coming out of this is, you know, a lot of our listeners being Marvelicious Toys are comic book fans. I've read at least the first 300 issues of Spider-Man cover to cover. I've seen the movies. I've seen the TV shows. You know what this felt like to me is somebody who, when the movie came out in 2002, went and saw it once and eight years later, after one viewing, tried to recall it from memory and got a lot of things wrong. It is far more an abstraction of the movie Spider-Man than it is of anything from the comics, really. Well, the, at least the first act. I agree yes. with you. The origin story feels very awkward. And I guess I should put it out there. I'm not much a bigger fan than Julie Tamer of Spider-Man, but I am maybe a little bit more respectful. I only saw the movie once as well, and I'm not a huge Spider-Man fan. I didn't show up here because I wanted to see my hero on the stage. I wanted to see what they were going to do uh, with this character and how humiliating it was going to be. (laughs) But I gotta say, I felt it was really disrespectful the way that she tried to insist that this was a story about Arachne, the Greek goddess Weaver, and that that character is so centrally posited. There is a chorus of, uh, of, of nerds that are comic book readers. They call it the Geek Chorus, which is, of course, a play on words of the Greek Chorus, classical Greek stage adaptations. There's always stand-ins who sort of narrate the of tragedies and Greek comedies. Here, they're doing it as well for Spider-Man. And they have a female character there that's being like, before there was a Spider-Man, there was a Spider-Woman. And, and you know, she's always like nudging them the boys in the ribs and saying, oh, don't blame Mary Jane 
blame for the problems. I just really felt like there was a weird feminist stance on this of like she really felt like Spider-Man represented patriarchy and male fantasy and that she wanted to put a feminist gloss on that. And I thought, how inappropriate, really? I mean, is it so wrong that we came here to see Spider-Man and wanted to see him swing around and fight bad guys? Like, did we really need the lecture about how before there was Spider-Man, there was this Greek goddess character? What did you guys think of Arachne and how that integrated? First of all, I was really disappointed because this entire cast is nobody I've ever heard of, except for the former Arachne, Natalie Mendoza, who was Juno in the Descent films. And I was looking forward – you always look forward to seeing somebody you know from something else, right? Especially from movies, getting to see him in person. It's always a bit of a thrill, especially on Broadway. When we were there, the Lost Boys were doing a show. Um, Well, some of them. James Earl Jones was on a show. I mean, they always have these screen names because they're pulling somebody in. But no, she got hit on the head with a sandbag or something. And <laughs> <laughs> she had enough. She re- she signed some waiver and we'll never know the reasons why she walked from the show. But yeah, she left the show about a month before we saw it and uh, uh, has been paid for her work and will not disclose why and what caused her decisions to leave. But I think we can all read between the lines. And the fact that A lot of the reviews of the earlier story say that the second act was too Arachne heavy and that they wanted to reduce that. And perhaps that's something she didn't want was her role reduced. But as for Arachne herself in the story, I don't have a problem with them bringing in Greek myth. God knows the Spider-Man origin has been rewritten again and again in the comics as well to where he's a mystical spider that is part of a legacy. This was all in some recent comics that have been retconned out of existence now. But I'm fine with them going back to a Greek goddess, but I do take a little bit of umbrage with the way they did it, with like, before Spider-Man, he wasn't the first and all of that. It's just the way it's done is snarky. Yeah, no, she makes, like, these are the things that Julie Tamer is preoccupied. When Spider-Man makes his costume and goes to the wrestling match, his first public display of his new persona, uh, Julie Tamer makes fun of the idea that a kid in high school could sew a decent costume. So, you know, she has him show up in sweats with a spider mask on and later has Arachne herself be the one to weave the outfit because she is in love with Spider-Man. That seems both absurd and kind of just too esoteric, really, for this. I mean, that that doesn't make any sense that a spider suit would just drop from the sky because some Greek goddess is watching you. Admittedly, she was a weaver. But yeah, and the fact is, the way the scene was staged, I wasn't even sure if she was the one who knitted the suit. I know that she's like hovering overhead and he has a suit, but I had to ask during the intermission, did he get the suit from her? Because it's just not made all that clear. And you'd think he'd be like, well, that's odd. Here's a suit. He doesn't question. Make no mistake. Everything that's good about Spider-Man, Julie Tamor sees, is rooted in Iraq. She does not like Spider-Man. It's very evident. And another way she rewrites in a, a feminist character is she was angry that there was no females for Spider-Man to fight. No villains. So she creates the Swiss Miss. Now, that is bull. Because, first of all, this entire story where Arachne's in love with Spider-Man and Spider-Man has Mary Jane, this is in the comics with a character named the Black Cat, okay? There are female villains in Spider-Man's rogues gallery. The Black Cat is kind of the Catwoman. I don't need to tell my audience this. They know who Black Cat is. So, yes, there. I was telling Stuart more than anything. There are females for 
Spider-Man to fight. They did not need to invent Swiss Miss the drag queen. However, I think <laughs> that they needed something that would be loud and in your face and a spectacle because all of the villains in the second act with the fashion show of villains, they were all just ridiculous and they were like larger than life. Swiss Miss head to toe chrome spinning little blades. Not yes, good at all. The bee guy. What was that, by the way? Arnie? Swarm, yes. Uh, former Nazi scientist. Uh, really, really obscure. They they can pull out Swarm, but they can't pull out Black Cat or... Dr. Octopus. Where was Dr. Octopus? He was at the buffet. Yeah, I guess. He gave her the finger. Eight of them. <laughs> but, you know... Uh- I want to say Swiss Miss, when I finally made the jump that it's supposed to be a Swiss Army knife, it made a lot more sense. But who was not thinking about Coco when you hear Swiss Miss? I mean, I was, not going to lie. <laughs> I, I thought it was like the St. Pauli girl. Yeah, hot chocolate. I mean, is, is it going to come down from the Alps and yodel? I mean, what <laughs> is Swiss Miss going to do? Well, here's what's funny is they were serving drinks at the bar and they had like the green villain drink and the hero drink. I I think they couldn't use the actual Marvel names on liquor, but I actually said, so where's the Swiss Miss drink? (laughs) (laughs) I think that seems like a given. Yeah, right. Well, probably because Swiss Miss or Nestle did not want their product associated with the sinking ship. Well, let's go back and let's talk about Act 1 and talk about what we felt about Act 1. And we've got some questionable songs and some even more questionable dance sequences. Okay, the music. I think that's where we start first and foremost. I, You know, I am a very casual U2 listener. Many times I find Bono uh, insufferably pretentious. And no, I've, you're yes, kidding. Uh, you think so? <laughs> his ego, his good Samaritan is always drowned out by the fact that you feel like he's doing it for his own vanity and not for the better of the world. And yes. Hey, I'm a huge U2 fan. I have all of their CDs. I have the U2 version of the iPod. Big U2 fan. Completely agree with you. Bono's a pretentious tool. Yes. I believe you guys now have to pay $8,000 each for mentioning his name. And I say with that with a capital H. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they do have some good songs. I particularly like their electronic phase. I like Octoon Baby, Zuropa, a few of those. That period to me, it was when I felt like they had the most light in image. They were having the most fun. But whenever they get too gospely, too raspy, too reaching to save the world, it always irritates me. And here, taking the persona of spider-man it's all about trying to save the world and rising above it and it's just woo it's just i mean i think even julie tamor said in some of the interviews that she envisioned peter parker being bono that was how she wrote the character oh so she pictured peter parker as god yes pretty much well huh Now, I've got to say, as a U2 fan, that was one of the big driving factors that I want to see this is because I like U2 songs, even some of their later stuff. I admit that they're kind of been weak the past couple albums, in my opinion, but I like their early stuff, their mid stuff, even some of their later stuff, how to dismantle an atomic bomb and all that. I was looking forward to hearing new U2 music, and if this CD had been made available last fall as planned, I would have bought it sight unseen just because of U2 and Bono. Now, of course, we can rip upon Bono. He's a very easy target. He's a big enough man to take our jabs. But 
Hearing You Too as played by rock band wannabe Carney, which is the yes. band in the Spider-Man the Musical. The guy who plays Spider-Man, Reeve Carney, is frontman of a band called Carney, and his bandmates are standing on the stage, not in the orchestra, but on the stage, like they're at a concert playing guitar and playing the rock songs. And that was very distracting, by the way. I'd like to make a little side note about that, because every time they'd pick up a new guitar, it would flash in the lights, even though the lights weren't shining on them, it'd catch a little bit of light, and it was very distracting to see these guys on the side of the stage, because usually the orchestra pit you really don't pay attention to when you see shows. But they were seriously stage left and annoying. Well, uh, you know, Tamar talked about the fact that she didn't want it to be seen as, you know, your parents' kind of musical, that she wanted it to be a rock show. And so I guess the thought was, not only are we watching Spider-Man doing aerial acrobatics, but we're getting a rock concert as well. I would actually argue, Marjorie, there wasn't enough of it for me, that if they were supposed to be at least part of the time taking our attention, I never looked over at those guys. I didn't find them at all captivating. I, I, I don't know why you wouldn't put them in the orchestra's pit because they don't hold your attention. They're not there to impress you. They're just literally playing the music. And, and I agree. The only reason I paid any attention to them was because I would see them out of the corner of my eye or one of their guitars would catch the light. There was no point to it, I thought. There's two guys, first of all, and like 80 guitars. <laughs> I was expecting a band, a rock band. And instead, they had like some guy with long hair in a vest and some other guy with a bunch of guitars. And they were it, lacking the drummer is what it was. Yeah, but it wasn't yeah. very much of a spectacle. And it was just that's why it was kind of annoying. It was off to the side and forgotten. But back to my original point, <laughs> hearing you 2 as sung by Carney made me realize Bono is tremendous because you take these highly pretentious lines. Bono can deliver them. Reeve Carney cannot. It was like a bad cover band. First of all, the lyrics were terrible anyway. No, yeah. Don't put this on Reeve Carney, Arnie. But put it right where it belongs. Bono sucks in this show. Hold on now. Terrible music <laughs> with stupid lyrics. He has failed this production. Carney is doing the best he can with bad material. I, I disagree, though, because first of all, I think some of the songs, I'd hear the music. A lot of the songs, I'd forget it was you, too. It just felt generic like a generic broadway musical yeah. i disagree with that as well but all right it, it's what i would envision a generic broadway musical to be how about that uh, of what i've seen of wicked the songs remind me of what i've seen of wicked like on tv and on specials and stuff i feel like i was watching a, a glee episode covering you too i felt like everyone was musical theater trained and told oh by the way you need to imitate bono i i only got the U2 vibe off some of the songs and by no means all of the songs. But when I would get the U2 vibe, I'd kind of be like, oh, all right, let, let's get into this. And then Carney's delivery of the lyrics was just so pathetic. Now, here's why I can say Bono can pull it off. I went back and watched the 60 minute special of this where they have Bono singing the lyrics. And it worked for me better than Reeve Carney singing the lyrics. Bono knew how to inflect it. He knew how to enunciate it and knew how to deliver it because he's writing for himself. And when he's writing for somebody else who's trying to imitate Bono, it was poor, poor, poor. Yes, your problem, I think, is that anyone would want to imitate Bono, not that Carney did a bad job. I want to advocate that I think Reeve Carney is actually a fine Spider-Man and has vocal talent and... I don't feel like he did a bad job. I just think it's a thankless job to try and imitate 
Bono in a musical about Spider-Man. I'm not saying the boy can't sing. I'm not saying his band can't play. I'm just saying Bono should write lyrics only for the Bono. Yes. I, because only the Bono can deliver those lyrics. I wouldn't disagree with that. And I also want to say for my money, most of these songs felt like outtakes from a U2 album. I did not feel like they were classic musical theater pieces at all. They felt like U2 songs to me. The worst part, though, was that one scene, a car's driving past and it's playing Vertigo, and it reminds you that U2 does have good music out there, and you're not hearing it for most of the show. I hate Vertigo. So what you're saying is that on the last U2 CD, Bullying by Numbers was a song that didn't make the cut, and that kind of made you think of U2, because I didn't think that song sounded like U2 at all. I would say Rise Above, Bouncing Off the Walls, Boy Fall from the Sky. I would say well over half of the songs in this are, and then the other half are like, oh, what does Disney do? And Bono listening to like A Whole New World and trying to do that for Mary Jane. See, that, that's how I felt for like half of it. Is it. Yeah, generic Disney music might be better than generic Broadway music because I've seen more Disney than Broadway. Well, at this, at this point, they're synonymous. I think Disney took over Broadway in the last 10 years. But yeah, I'd say about half the songs did have that unique U2 vibe and that unique edge guitar sound. You know, that, well, I, it was unique until Coldplay came around anyway. <laughs> so my other problem is, it was very hard to understand what they were saying in the songs, like Bullying by Numbers that Marjorie talks about, which is a wonderful rousing musical. If you ever want to see pre-Spider-Bite Peter Parker beaten up by Flash Thompson and his goons while singing. And dancing. And missing, quite obviously, and never coming anywhere close to I thought to it a was punch. a bling by numbers because the, either the audio was bad or the singers didn't enunciate. I couldn't tell. Oh, I had to look at the program after the intermission to see. I thought it was boing by numbers, like he's boinging off their fists. Well, regardless, it is one of the worst numbers in the show. And she makes Taylor Tamor makes a, a curious decision, maybe because she knows that this is an all ages audience, that there shouldn't be too much actual physical contact and violence. All of it's pantomime. All of it is staged intentionally so that we know that no one is actually being hurt when punches are thrown. That's not just in this scene. That's in any battle. Just about. Yeah. A couple of the aerial ones, they do grapple. But anything with punches being thrown, they're a good yard away. But I actually kind of liked the chorus of Bullying by Numbers. It was kind of a rocking thing. I mean, terrible lyrics. Across the board, I'm just not even going to say it anymore. Just assume the lyrics were terrible in every song because they were. <laughs> they were ridiculous. They were like, I honestly thought you two, or Bono and The Edge, who knows what the other two guys were doing and why they didn't want a paycheck. But I really thought Bono and The Edge only wrote the, the notes. I didn't realize they wrote the lyrics. I kind of, I wanted to attribute the lyrics to somebody else because I'm a U2 fan. There you go. They, they did the lyrics and they're just, I, they're bad. They're really ridiculously bad. Some of the rhymes in there are ludicrous. It matches the dialogue. The writing in general on Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. I'm hearkened to hear that they have brought in another writer or that they're trying to, to have someone else take a crack at this because it is the biggest problem I have with the show. Not the choreography, not the sets, not anything. It is the way that the characters are written when they sing, when they speak. Anytime anyone opens their mouth, it's usually a groaner. And 
in keeping with the fact that I feel the first act is just a ripoff of the original movie, the villain is the Green Goblin, Norman Osborn, who suddenly is Southern. Very Southern and married. And married. Well, Harry had to come from somewhere, but I've never seen a Southern portrayal of the Green Goblin before, nor have I ever seen a Green Goblin who did not want to sell his tech to the military, giving us another great musical number as a bunch of don't ask, don't tell army men sing. I disagree because I thought that one was insufferable oh my god i couldn't wait for it to end because they it was just a bad song and i did not appreciate the costumes because you could see the cardboard and the stiffener where they had the pants jutting out at the sides like the big hips i could not stand that number it just oh made me uncomfortable what numbers did you like um none of them really i'm not gonna lie yeah right i'll tell you what i liked i will give this some huge props for the Spider-Man hero theme that that is a better Spider-Man theme than anything Elfman wrote in two Spider-Man movies. It was instantly recognizable. And by the end of this horrible ordeal of a play, I was really getting roused whenever that reprise would come up again. It was okay, but you know what? It actually reminded me of uh, Bono's Batman song, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, whatever that was. I, I don't think so, but, you know, and, and I don't think that was written for Batman. That was just on a Batman album, and it was nominated for a Razzie. <laughs> I also liked a couple of the more actiony songs. Again, lyrics dumb, but the music was pretty good in the Army number. The, I like the more rocking songs. I will cop to, if there had been a soundtrack in that gift shop, I would have walked out with it. But would you have played it? I would have probably put two or three tracks from it on my iPod. Mm -hmm. Uh, One number that almost works early on is bouncing off the walls. They do something. That's when they're really starting to get the wire work going. And they create a false room in which he proceeds to almost like, uh, you know, singing in the rain, dance from walls to ceiling down to the floor again. It almost works. But there was something that just wasn't quite magical about it. It was just not quite taking off the way that it was meant to do. I think maybe this is, Stuart, this may be something you can answer then. Were we supposed to see the people behind the walls moving it? Because they weren't even wearing black clothing. Some of them had like jeans on and white pants. Capri jeans with pale legs and white socks. You could see them moving the walls, which... Okay, I understand it's not magic. However, it broke the illusion. And I thought it would have been cooler if you didn't see it because it could have been a cool scene. If they did it like the puppets in Forgetting Sarah Marshall where the people are all dressed in black leotards. Yeah. I don't know what that means. But yes, I am going to put this out right now. I want to make it clear. This is a Tamor signature. She wants you to see the seams. She wants you to see the wires. She wants you to take note of the production. She is very postmodern in that way. Lion King works much in the same way. All of her other stage shows always have this element. It really goes back to a theater maker from the 1920s, Bertolt Brecht, and the whole idea of being able to see the production, to put it there more honestly. Now, God knows why she thought Bertolt Brecht and Spider-Man would make a good combo, but this is pretension brought to you exclusively by Tamar. She is not, unlike Mary Poppins or Peter Pan, trying to create the illusion that when Spider-Man is taking off, he's taking off. She wants you to see the cardboard. She wants you to see the wires. She wants you to observe that this is theater. It's very postmodern. At one point, Mary Jane goes on and, and becomes an actress on Broadway, and her show is The Fly. I mean, they're commenting on the fact that Spider-Man is on Broadway. It's Tamor's embarrassed. I feel like she's embarrassed that she took this gig and she wants to comment on it. She wants to explain herself. 
And there is no explanation that will hold, in my opinion. Much like you didn't understand my forgetting Sarah Marshall reference, I'm lost as to what you just said. I'm hoping it meant something to some of the listeners. The names you mentioned have no meaning to me. But I think if Julie Taymor is trying to hearken back to some theater tradition, she picked the wrong show for it because Spider-Man, much like Lion King, should play to the non-theater initiated. We shouldn't need to have backgrounds in Broadway in order to appreciate it. I just thought it looked kind of cheap. Well, I don't know that you need to have the backgrounds, but I know that that's where it comes from. I know that when Spider-Man gets in the wrestling match with an inflatable doll, which was hysterical, I thought he was going to hop it. She's not going to hope that you think that that's a real battle. She wants you to know that this is all phony baloney and that it has a coolness that transcends it uh, and that's it doesn't though. yeah it doesn't if it did that would be one thing unfortunately it just came across like i see this giant inflatable ape that looks like he wants me to buy a cell phone in an inflatable ring and it makes me think where is the money going because it ain't on that blow up doll i really was thinking i paid two hundred dollars to watch some guy mud wrestle with a plastic sex doll that was giant <laughs> you wouldn't pay two hundred dollars for that marjorie i think i would prefer uh, if it was jello yes but not mud <laughs> no i honestly and i understand you know the nod to the guy from the 20s and everything i understand that however not the right one to do this on because given the history of this show and its short lifespan i really thought it was just unfinished no it's the absolute wrong thing to do it's it's arrogant it's pretentious i mean she's making this artsy show about greek mythology and Bertolt breck when she took the most money anyone's ever had double for a broadway show and put people's lives in danger to tell spider-man i felt like it was unethical what she's done. She created a giant show about how much she doesn't understand and care about Spider-Man. And I just got to say that takes some nerve when we're all there because of this character. More to the point, it's myopic. I believe she is just so involved in her own worldview that she can't imagine that people wouldn't know the references. The references to what? To the previous theater, that they wouldn't get that she's trying to hearken back to these things. I feel like that's her talking to her friends that are like, Julie, why are you doing this show? I don't think she thinks that families get. I think she's thinking they'll just ignore it and enjoy it like they did in The Lion King. Wrong. I was laughing so hard during some of these scenes, and it was all unintentional laughter. I wasn't laughing with them. I was laughing at them. Oh, I agree. There are moments that you need to work for drama that are just uproariously comic. Cool. The the uncle that raises Peter Parker and when he gets run over, they've rewritten it that he gets run over by a stolen car. That was the worst moment in the show. That was absurd. It completely robs the moment of anything. It's just instead of stopping a robbery after the wrestling, Peter Parker doesn't help Flash Thompson recover his stolen car and the thief hits Uncle Ben and Uncle Ben dies and Peter never chases after the guy either. It's just Uncle Ben's dead. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was it was incredibly poorly staged, acted, everything. It was just a low moment. And there are many of those. Yes, I was giggling uproariously all throughout Act One. But at the same time, I was worried how the show could keep up this momentum. And that when we broke for the intermission, I was afraid of, particularly considering I heard that all the problems with the show were related to the second act, how much worse it was going to get. And I must say, I think they made a fatal error 
by feeling they had to do the origin story and do a Spider-Man adventure because it made the origin story feel really rushed. He has this end battle at the end of Act 1 with the Green Goblin that's just a little bit confusing after the Green Goblin does a piano number. Yeah, I wasn't really sure where that was going. Why couldn't they have just started this as Spider-Man exists and this is an adventure? Why'd they have to do origin story and then adventure and cut it in half like this? Because A, Julie Taymor doesn't know where he comes from, and so she has to tell herself, and B, she has to make sure that we understand that lest we think that this all comes from a comic book, like a silly old comic book, we need to understand that this is all Greek myth and Greek theater. And I just, that will never stop irritating me. I actually got mad whenever that stuff came up. And at the end of Act 1, it appeared like the Green Goblin died, right? I mean, they knock him off a building and he goes splat. And I'm like, okay. He did. He did die. And they do address that in the second act, although in a very esoteric way. Because in in Act 2, we learn that all of these villains are illusions. They even have a musical number about illusions. And that everything that Spider-Man battles and the fact that villains die and keep coming back and again and again and again is because they are all the weave work of Arachne. She's behind it all. And here we start Act 2 with what the geek chorus calls an ugly pageants instead of a beauty pageant because they're villains and we get to see several of spider-man's rogues gallery plus the aforementioned swiss miss (laughs) and we get to see swarm i i don't know why they (laughs) pulled out swarm but swarm where did they get any of these people with the exception of electro who does not look like he did in the comic book at all cartoon he was the only character that i recognized i don't know who the dude with the lion is on his shirt i don't know swarm i swiss miss you know whatever i wanted the cocoa that's (laughs) it would have been better if the marionette came out and you know threw hot chocolate on him than what we got the grace jones with the swiss army knife sticking out of her well we had carnage who is you know who venom is right sure venom's suit had a offspring who bonded to a psychopath and thus it became carnage okay somebody even more villainous than venom it explains everything and nothing but all right yes there was some (laughs) there was something that looked like an evil mutant spider-man yes and it was red and glowed the guy with the lion on his head was Craven the Hunter. Now, here's what shocked me. Craven the Hunter just wears like a lion over his – like a, a lion pelt. But the guy who came out had this huge freaking mask on and was all comic booky, like everybody else who had masks. This guy was in like a paper mache head and looked really weird. But It was a similar style of the criminals that we saw during the montage of villains – with the giant black and white cartoony heads, it reminded me of, and only one person got this reference, was in Beaches near the end when Bette Midler is doing her off-Broadway, getting back to her street cred musical. And there's this musical number that's very industrial with the music and the people have like these big exaggerated faces on them. <laughs> I just want to compliment you, Marjorie, for the most obscure reference I have heard in quite some time. I okay, I will, I will take your word on that, and I, I almost consider it high praise that they, uh, they did that. 
uh, to me, it's just more uh, Julie Taymor outlandishness that Greek masks, you know, a lot masks are used a lot in Greek theater and you have giant oversized. Uh, that, that's that's how they convey emotions back in the day They you know, they're in the auditoriums. It wasn't easy to see people's faces. So they held up heads that were bigger than their own to show. These are things that Julie Taymor is throwing out there. God knows why. Well, but, well, I can't <laughs> pull off a reference as good as Marjorie's Beaches one. I can say it reminded me of the Dick Tracy movie. And perhaps that's that's because one of the villains that was in the black and white head was Hammerhead, who is another one of Spider-Man's old time villains. And I mean, he gets he doesn't even get a name drop, but I could tell from the style of the head. It was Hammerhead and a couple other of his thugs. Oh, they also did some. There's lizard there, too. Right. But he's like a dinosaur. Oh, my God. Can I can I talk about the lizard? Because Let's please explain it to me. Don't talk about it. Tell me what I saw because I thought it was something different than what I got. All right. The lizard is normally Dr. Kurt Connors, a one-armed scientist who lost his arm and then studied reptiles to gain the powers back of limb regeneration. Unfortunately, uh, things go wrong, as they often do. And he grew his limb back, but he became the lizard. And Stuart, you have to know the lizard. You read the McFarlane arc uh, when he started that Spider-Man one where Spider-Man was versus the lizard. On the stage play, this guy comes out and he's bald and in a white coat. And I'm like, is that the kingpin? And they go, the lizard. And I'm like, the lizard? All right, the, the really fat, bald guy has one arm but why did they make the lizard look like the kingpin and then they're like and and the geek chorus is telling the story of the lizard and then all of a sudden i i knew there was something in this guy's stomach right i mean he was it, it didn't look like even a bad fat suit it looked like he was wearing something under his shirt an inflatable lizard comes out and now it looked like he was ready to go to the pool with like a uh, yeah little inner tube with a lizard face on it because you could still see like the kingpin head and things but this inflated lizard was coming out too so now it had like two heads it was oh my god it was the worst lizard ever yes in lion king uh, it's fun to watch julie Taymor riff on how to dress people up as animals because she goes with the classic look and plays with what disney did when she takes the characters as they're drawn in the comics and tries to reinvent and restage them in her own way on stage, it looks like she didn't pay attention to what the <laughs> artist did. It looks like she had disregard for what is Spider-Man. Yeah, Electro is just a guy that's holding torches, right? He's, He's like not a- even holding torches. It looks like there's sparklers in his hands. I thought it was sparklers. Yeah, no, it is. I thought he was going to juggle. And now, all right, let's look at who she brought out. Carnage, Electro, Craven, Lizard, Swarm, and Swiss Miss, and the Green Goblin. And those seven are the Sinister Six? <laughs> well, Green Goblin's not part of the six, Sinister Six. I thought but, he was the leader of the Sinister Six in this. Well, well, you know, them not being able to count is probably why they're $30 million over budget. <laughs> Act two is where it really took a bad turn for me. Because act one, I was at least, I, I got to say, I was enjoying myself. Not in a good way, but I was enjoying myself. <laughs> act two was boring. It was boring. It, I agree. It was tedious. It was endless. I never thought it would end. I will say this much. I felt it was more coherent than the comments I had heard about it beforehand. I feel like I followed what the story was trying to say, which is not what I expected to see. But it was done very poorly. 
and it was yes, there was no joy to it. You're right. I rarely laughed. I rarely had the holding my sides. I can't believe what I'm watching enjoyment that I did with in Act One with Act Two. The only time that I did, and it is the absolute worst musical number in the whole thing. If they cut no other number, they must cut Deeply Furious. Because what they try to bring up in the second act is that Arachne becomes jealous that Spider-Man doesn't want to be Spider-Man anymore after all the things she's done for him. And so she's angry and she sicks a bunch of her spider friends (laughs) on City. Now, this is not Firestar and Iceman. I don't know what that means. (laughs) They are spiders wearing new shoes and doing chorus lines because... Of course, when women break through Gotham, they're going to steal a bunch of shoes. I thought, man, for someone that's trying to do a proto-feminist superhero story, that sure is setting women back uh, several decades. But yes, we have a kick line of spider women. And I just thought, get rid of this. Get, it is poison. It is toxic. It's not even funny bad. It is just a nightmarishly stupid visual. But yet I found it strangely erotic. You would. Well, Well, maybe that's why it's still in there, because in the end, it is one of the few places where we're getting skin. But it is spider skin. I just want to remind you. I just had trouble figuring out exactly what it was. And then when it dawned on me, I'm like, oh, really? And and you see, they do in the second act, the almost overdone at this point, Spider-Man No More storyline from Spider-Man number 50, Amazing Spider-Man number 50. Got to drop some comic knowledge here that I have. And that was also done in the second Spider-Man movie. It's like, really? They're, They're doing that? And yet the result isn't anything personal. It's that it pisses off a Greek goddess who, all right, I'm going to say something that's going to mean nothing to anyone on this call, but will mean something to the listeners. Arachne freaked me out when she showed up as a half-human, half-spider with the spider legs and the human torso. Because as a kid, I watched Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and there was a villain on that where a guy was trying to get Spider-Man's powers, and that turned into him, and he shot webs out of his mouth. And that gave me nightmares when I was seven. And seeing a real person in a with the spider leg thing that was messing with my head i've just gotta say it was a weird visual i thought sometimes it was neat the way that the legs would come in and out of it the spider body would sort of come out of the darkness and sometimes she would be singing and she would be more woman than spider uh, i also thought more than spider-man jumping out audience and more than goblin when she finally comes out and circles the uh flying circle which is where we were sitting it had the most visceral impact i got the most charge out of seeing this giant Spider-Woman coming at me than Spider-Man or Green Goblin. Yeah, because she had the six legs plus the two arms. I mean, she was... the body part was what was wrong about that. Well, there were a couple different body parts. There was the fully, like, puppetized or mechanized body, which I like. Then there was times that she just looked like a woman bound and flinging her waist to make her legs move, and that one didn't work for me. But when she was in the full spider body and just a torso, like a a centaur with a spider instead of a horse, that, that was messing with my mind i I was like on a bad trip at that point (laughs) it was it was trippy what did you guys think of the wire work overall obviously visual i mean yeah we'd already said they were too obvious it bothered me that spider-man would just arbitrarily grab one of the wires to be his web and neither one looked more webby than the others I, i wish they would have done that as far as the stunts i was let down i have seen stunt shows at star wars conventions and at 
Disney with like the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular. This has nothing on those. Nothing at all. This no, was. It was very slow. Yes. Yeah. All of the flying, it was very casual. Can I just say, though, I think what we saw was a production compromised because, yes. you know, the infamous YouTube video of the guy when the harness breaks. That yes. was not in our show. When he is supposed to jump off the bridge to go after Mary Jane, which is when the harness broke, they just cut the lights. And it's left to our imagination to think he jumped. Yes, and I remember I remember reading that these people are supposedly whipping around at 130 miles an hour in the audience, and they are not moving that fast. They were floating. Yeah. That is a lie. Either that was misrepresentation or somebody slowed it down because there had been authorities bringing in for safety reasons. I'm glad you guys saw the same thing I did. It did feel like they have changed the show to, to fit guidelines, and it is, it is tedious. The jumping around, the flying, the big battle with Goblin and Spider-Man, and it was just – it was like they were trapped in amber. It was like they were drowning in syrup. They just could not move. Trapped in a web? Yes. It, it, it does not look right. It does not – I've seen Cirque du Soleil shows, which is – they brought in the same people that do Cirque du Soleil shows, and that's some beautiful acrobatics there. And this stuff has nothing on that. This is the worst Cirque du Soleil I've ever seen. Well, you do know what I read was that – one more safety violation and they lose their ability for the stunt work, the wire work. Mm. And they're getting spot checks. And can you imagine the show with no webbing, with nobody leaving the stage, with everyone just stuck singing on stage? Yes, I, I can I can imagine that show very clearly. It's a bunch of people in getting getting unemployment checks. Yeah, it would. Uh, it would. The show is predicated on the idea that it's going to leap off the stage. The whole thing is about a comic springing out of the two dimensions right at you. The the wire work is built into the show. It wouldn't work without it. There is only one moment. There's only one moment that took my breath away that was good, and that is the curtain call when Spider-Man comes out. I thought that was actually awesome when he drops in his famous classic Spider-Man pose and does the reverse upside-down kiss. Yeah, that was kind of cool. I just felt that for all the talk and everything surrounding this about the flying, and we sat in the flying circle, we researched to see the best seats for this show, and everyone's in the flying circle— there wasn't enough of it either. Yeah. It's, it was the, for all the first acts. It's like they used it all up and did it very sparingly. It just had the Arachne floating a lot in the second one. Well, again, maybe there was more varied stunts earlier in the show's life. But it felt to me like once you'd seen Spider-Man swing and land, he landed right in front of us because we were in the flying circle mm -hmm. and there's two little yeah. pedestals that he gets to land on. And in fact, even before the show, we're like, we bet Spider-Man lands there. And, and it's kind of distracting, though, with those two pedestals because the crew guys come and shine flashlights on those so that they know where to put Spider-Man. I really do feel like these are victims of the the sandbag injuries and the wire snapping and all of that. We were seeing a show that had been slowed down and had been extra safetyed and that yeah, there was not a technical glitch to the show that we saw. We can all agree. No, there were two. There were two. There were Okay, well, what were they? I didn't notice them. The first one was during Act 1, Arachne's arrival. There were like six people swinging back and forth on big yellow curtains. There was supposed to be a seventh person, and apparently they just didn't show up that day. But that's not a technical snag. Like, she wasn't there and got stuck and just dangled. I mean, that was somebody not hitting their mark. Then later on, one of the spider people was facing the wrong way the whole time. It was actually two of them. 
when they were all hanging from the stage and just kind of like going up and down, two of them were stuck facing backstage instead of out. And they kept trying to twist their yeah, bodies to rotate. Yeah, you could see rotate. them kind of wiggle to try to rotate, <laughs> but it wasn't working. But they were minor. There were no showstoppers. And I was slightly disappointed. No, no. There was nobody falling. There was nobody hurt. There was nothing that it more or less went off without a hit. So the, show, the problems with the show are, are not that they haven't worked out those bugs. But in doing so, in getting the show to where it was at the night that we saw it, it also made these supposedly spectacular sequences kind of dull to watch. And after we'd seen him jump out a few times and after the fight with the Green Goblin at the end of Act 1, that's it. And all they can do then is repeat it. There is no upping the stakes for Act 2. Mm-mm. Except for Arachne's costume floating out while she it's, sings. It's not even a new thing to have people fly in theater. Peter Pan did it with Sandy Duncan in the 70s. <laughs> I mean, this is decades old. Mary Poppins was playing across the street, and I know that bitch flies all over. <laughs> so it ain't, it ain't that special. For $60 million, you really thought you were going to see something uh, never attempted before. And I got to say, it, it, the novelty wears off very thin. Well, very Mary quick. Poppins is an apt analogy because it really looked like Spider-Man was flying. All he needed was an umbrella. What I came for, what I had been sold was a stunt show mm-hmm. by Cirque du Soleil. And the only th- thing I noticed that was stunty is that the Spider-Man stunt doubles had helmets on quite clearly under their spider masks as <laughs> yeah. their heads were malshapen. They did. Admittedly, with all the injuries, who can blame them? <laughs> no, it's, it's probably something that was put in after the injury of the man falling. I mean, yes, you want head protection. I can't fault them for this. And all of this is coming down to, well, if we can't have a fast-paced, stunt-spectacular show, why are we watching this? Why is this on Broadway? Why isn't this in a theme park on Universal Studios closing the night at the park? We are in the theater, and this show needs to rise above a stunt show. This is a a work of theater, and as such, what distinguishes this from something we would see in a, a theme park? It's history. It's infamy. And honestly, they've come this far. This show was notorious. It's infamous. And just to give you an idea, my almost 70 father and stepmother who do not know Spider-Man from Spawn know about this Broadway musical and were excited that we were going to see this one because they had seen it on TV over and over and over again. I mean, honestly, we live in Podunk, Illinois, Arnie and I do, and this made our local paper, this show. Not us going. (laughs) But I think they've gone so far now, they would look like fools, and there's so much money lost if they back out now. They're at the point, they've just got to try to recover some of the money on this bad press. You know, you're not alone in that. Look, look, did you check out the ladies sitting next to us that came late and left early in the fur coats? <laughs> they were smart. They didn't know a thing about Spider-Man. They were there because they had heard this was the latest thing on Broadway and they wanted to see it for themselves. And they had their fill after an hour and were very obnoxiously Rude. getting up when they were getting out. But I can't blame I, – I, I would have preferred that they waited to, for the intermission and not come back. But instead they, they did it in the middle of Act 2. But I understand why they did it. It isn't going to change anyone's mind that loves musical theater that this should be here on Broadway. Well, you asked what we were there for. I would have been fine if it had been visually, visually stunning and a great stunt show and had a lackluster story. I would have been fine 
if it had some really rocking U2 of old type songs and had okay stunts and an okay story. Or it would have been fine if the story was really inventive and engaging and had great characterizations of perhaps my favorite comic book hero of all time. And the rest was a little lackluster. But the fact is they did strike one, strike two, strike three. I am out. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't seen the final production, but I can honestly say I wouldn't go back to watch the new improved version whenever it should open, whether it's in March or, or whenever they think they're going to get it going. I, I'm not interested. I could barely get through Act 2. It was so long. And, you know, I'll admit some of this is I'm not a Spider-Man fan. If they had done a really good job, it probably wouldn't have thrilled me, but I could have appreciated it. Here, it just seems like a bad idea poorly executed by the wrong people. I really go back to Tamor and say, if you didn't care for this character and you would rather be telling Greek mythology stories, stay away. Don't try to mesh the two into some $60 million vision that puts people's lives at stake. It seems highly irresponsible to mount this show in this way. I was really hoping, seeing it when we did, that what we saw was close enough to final that I would never even need to think about going back. And that was before I saw it. I don't like where this is going. Now that I hear they're rewriting it, possibly almost entirely, the one thing I read that kind of makes me think, well, this, it's not going to help, is I heard that you 2 Edge and Bono, are kind of done with it. They've done what they're going to do. And they're not allowing the songs to be changed. So anything they rewrite is only going to be the dialogue in between the bad songs. Which needs rewriting. I mean, that, that would be great. If they could fix that, they would be going very, very far. That dialogue is atrocious. And I would say even condescending to people that like comic books. It, it is. It yeah. also, back to the your mom trying to read comic books, it's also your mom impersonating how she thinks teenagers talk. With that oh, geek yes. chorus. God. Oh, it's awful. It's just so awful, that geek chorus. Yeah, I mean, it really, it could use a rewrite, but it's not going to help because the problems inherent with it are pacing and story. If you have It'll to, help. It's not going to save it. it. No. They can't save the show. I don't think I'll ever have the chance to see it again because I cannot imagine the show will still be going when we go back to New York. And we're thinking about going back in the fall. And I can't imagine the show will still be playing. If I have heard all the critics who have just drubbed this thing go, we were wrong. It is totally different. And then I might go back. But I, I mean, I, I see this as highly, highly unlikely. It's as, I, I think I have equal chance of getting a winning lotto ticket. No, I agree. That's, that's, and I don't think critics even want to like it. I do feel like there was a feeling right from the get-go that Spider-Man doesn't belong on Broadway, that, that, that Tamar was dumbing down the great white way by putting this character in a musical and she has not been able to turn that tide that that perception she is not able to change the fact that there's nothing about this that says spider-man should sing and fly around a stage that just doesn't they i i'm not convinced and i don't think they can fix that no matter how much better they write the dialogue which needs rewriting well make no mistake if the critics didn't want spider-man to be there the bad publicity and everything isn't just them being snobby. I mean, people have been injured and this show's abysmal. Yeah. So I, I'm going to go by the old adage. I don't know a lot about Broadway, but I know what I like and this ain't it. But I think <laughs> we're in a different time as far as Broadway, musicals, theater, TV, and the fact that Green Day has a Broadway musical based on their music. There's a Spider-Man musical and 
the previews opened the week after we were there. The Book of Mormon by Matt and Trey of South Park because... Dum, 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 dum. Exactly. I think that people like us, Arnie, me, Stuart, who've always been kind of on the fringe, and nerd and geeky is very popular right now. And I think that our generation, this is what defined us. You know, we played with toys our whole life. I mean, we still get a kick out of that. We we never have grown up. And this is the kind of stuff we're going to start seeing. Mary Poppins is a niche thing almost kind of anymore. And it's your what your parents go see. When the kids go to Broadway and go to New York with their parents, the kids are going to go see Spider-Man or Green Day while mom and dad go to Mary Poppins or whatever James Earl Jones is doing right now. And I think this is going to slowly turn the tides i mean even with television if you look at the shows coming out there are things like the big bang theory and chuck i think you're going to see more of this stuff and it's your mom writing broadway plays that she thinks people in their 20s and 30s and 40s are going to want to see broadway is in an identity crisis yes there are two broadways there is the rogers and hammerstein broadway where they revive shows like camelot and anything goes and all the classics oklahoma but that's really not going to get new blood, new people. And, and people, yes, other than Disney and the family stuff that's been mounting, they have not really mounted a, a, a show that is connecting with young adults. I think that's what you're saying, Marjorie, is that there are 12-year-olds that will go to Mary Poppins, but a 22-year-old less likely to go to Mary Poppins. This show is aiming to get us to Broadway. And – it worked, but would we? But would we go back for Batman the musical? Would we go back for more of this? I gotta say, I'm not in the mood. Well, it's not like this is an unprecedented idea. In 1966, there was the Broadway musical. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. No, and it failed. It did fail it's miserably. A, yes, I it's, only it's a flop. <laughs> I only know about this because I was at a used record store looking through some records in soundtracks and came across it and almost bought it because I'd never heard of this thing—a Superman musical—and this was long before Spider-Man: Turn Off the Dark. So I, I think this is showing that yeah, it, it's not right. It's not working. Keep it to where we can be more wowed on the big screen. Uh, it does feel like movies are a more appropriate venue. And the idea of working in musical numbers into action plot lines really doesn't make any sense to me. I think that's the biggest bump is no action movie fan would be satisfied if they were watching next summer, uh, you know, the new Amazing Spider-Man movie. and Bullying and, by numbers. Yes, and Andrew Garfield started starts breaking into song. It's these things can't come together. I'm unconvinced that anyone could make it work. Most certainly not Julie Tamar, who has no affection for Spider-Man. Well, I guess this leaves, if I can steal from our sister podcast now playing Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend the Broadway musical Spider-Man turn off the dark Marjorie? Wow. I could say if you are a Spider-Man purist and Spider-Man's your religion, stay away because you will just become angry and angry and angry and just be furious. However, if you were the type of person to turn this into a fun show a la Rocky Horror Picture Show, perhaps you should go because that's what I thought I was going to end up getting. And I'm hoping this turns into a Rocky Horror thing because, you know, Rocky Horror started out as it was a musical and then they made a movie of it and it was so god awful. And that's how all the traditions started. So I'm really hoping for that. 
because it's a fun bad. But then again, not everyone wants to spend one hundred seventy five dollars on fun bad. I think you got it there. It's it costs too much to get a laugh out of this. Yeah, you can find much better laughs for a hell of a lot cheaper at the video store or Netflix or Amazon. So I'm gonna have to say not recommend. But if you're dying to see a Broadway musical and you're in New York and you don't think you'd really enjoy Mary Poppins and you want to see something that you're going to remember and be part of this big to do, then I guess you'd want to see it. But it's, it's truly as bad. It's awful. It's laughable and it's boring in parts and the stunts are bad. They're slow. It's like your grandma's Spider-Man. Stuart, I am glad that I saw this. I got the experience that I wanted to see. It is every bit as bad and every strange way that I could imagine the show to be. It was bad in ways I didn't even expect. And sometimes it was so bad it made me angry. And I will never forget this production. It is unlike anything I have ever seen. And I always appreciate that experience. That said, what, what you said, Marjorie, is key. For a laugh, you can find much more laughter for less than $150. And this show just costs too much, period. The reason why it will be canceled is not because people don't want to see it, but because it costs too much to keep this going. They need to make a million dollars a week to break even. And that doesn't pay down the $60 million debt. That just keeps production. That's, that's so that they have the wires to sling Spider-Man around next week. And I can't imagine as actors how rewarding this would be to put your life and limb and bones and everything to be whirled around for the scorn of other people. I mean, there's, it, it can't be very fun for them to know that they are doing all of this work and putting their life on the line to be mocked. I mean, there's no joy really in the production when you, when you boil it down. But it is a fantastic artifact, and it is a statement about where Broadway has come to in trying to capture generations. X and get us to go see a Broadway musical. It is a failure, but one that I appreciated seeing, though I can't recommend. And I'm going to disagree with Marjorie in that I don't even think this was good as a so bad it's good unless you just left after the first act. The second act was a chore. And so as expensive as it is and as long as that second act is, I can't recommend this to anybody for any reason. It's not so bad it's good because it's so bad it's bad. And if you have enough money where you would want to blow $170 a ticket and then leave it intermission because your fun is over and just have a laugh at the show's expense, more power to you. I don't have that kind of money. I Yeah. <laughs> Who has that disposable income? Some people do, but I don't. I, I would rather spend my money on things I enjoy, and this isn't it. I wanted to like it. I really did. I wanted the critics to be snobby critics that I disagreed with, and I wanted to be one of those audience members who was wowed by the spectacle, and maybe it's because of the compromises for safety. Maybe not. I don't know. I only saw it once, but it's truly – it insults me as a Spider-Man fan. It doesn't entertain me as somebody who enjoys just a good story. It didn't thrill me as a fan of U2 who saw U2 in concert in the past year and saw this and spend your money on the U2 ticket. That's only $30 if you like U2. Do not go see this. Do not go see this unless, like me, you want it as a badge of honor. 
I saw Spider-Man turn off the dark. I can only give it this much props. Julie Taymor knew that she needed to do more than create a stunt show to be justify it being on Broadway. She knew that she had to deliver drama and not just spectacle. But she failed. She failed. The failure hangs firmly on her. She has made many spectacular pageants, and her visual work is bar none, but... As a show, she should have had no business picking up the pen. Someone that likes Spider-Man should have written the show, and then she could have staged it. All that said, if they get to the point of releasing a CD, I will buy it. I still like the And I am actually going to steal the visual style of the backdrops and hire an artist to make a backdrop for my Marvel Universe action figures that mimics the style with the askew buildings of New York. So with that, Stuart, thanks for coming on over to the Marvelicious Ghetto. <laughs> I'm not sure what would bring me back. I'm not a huge comic book person, but I am watching all of the movies with you. And it has been interesting to see Spider-Man from a different vantage point. I guess we'll do it again next year for Now Playing. Yes, because for listeners who don't know, over at Now Playing, the movie review podcast, you can find it at nowplayingpodcast.com, and we'll have a link from marveliciousToys.com. Stuart, comic book fan Jacob, and I are watching and reviewing all the Marvel theatrically released movies and a few that weren't even theatrically released. Right now, you can hop on over there and hear us reviewing Howard the Duck. Mm. Remember that one? Only the most notorious bomb of the 80s? How about Man-Thing? And I went, Man-Thing and not Swamp-Thing because that was a learning curve for me. I'm like, oh, Swamp-Thing. I've seen that one. No, this is something else, guys. Dig deep into the swamp for this. Man-Thing. And kick ass and then later this summer we're going to be stretching our boundaries with Fantastic Four, biting into Blade, and of course with X-Men First Class – Sharpening our claws on the X-Men. Yep. I'm looking forward to that one. Those, that's maybe the only Marvel characters out of that bunch I really do know. And we are building up. We're going to be taking a few breaks from it to do some other series, but we are building up to our weekend of release review with the Avengers in 2012. It's now playing's longest retrospective series ever. So check that out with Stuart, Jacob, and I at NowPlayingPodcast.com. As well as next summer Spider-Man movie. And then who knows, if people listen, maybe Batman. Well, all I can say, guys, is thanks for having me on. But when Batman the musical tanks on Broadway next year, I don't think I can meet you in New York. <laughs> not a Batman fan? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not that. Maybe it's because I am a fan of the Nolan ones that I wouldn't want to see him get the turn off the dark treatment. Well, that, you say that now. But let, let's wait till there's a couple fractured skulls and we'll see what tune you're singing. <laughs> All right. Thanks again to Stuart for joining us. I was wondering who that was in the green room. You know, I came <laughs> into work and here's this guy I don't recognize. Now I know. <laughs> no, it sounds like you guys got exactly what you paid for there, huh? Pretty much. Actually, no, we get ripped off. Yeah, I feel ripped off. I do. Oh, come on. You would, you would have been ripped off if it would have been good, I think. That would have been the ripoff. Here's the thing. We <laughs> saw that, though, and there were very few technical glitches and no show-stopping glitches. That's what was disappointing. Nobody died. Oh, Arnie. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I guess I did get what I paid for for the first half, where it was just so bad I was laughing. But the second act, I really wish I'd done, like, those two rude r Russian ladies and left. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
So thank you to Stuart for joining us. And yes, as we mentioned, starting this Friday, even the now playing listeners don't know this, but you Marvelicious Toys listeners have found out our next movie series is starting. It is Marvel Comics, and it's starting this Friday with Howard the Duck. So head over to NowPlayingPodcast.com and listen to our review. (laughs) And thank you for joining us this week on Marvelicious Toys. We'll be back next week to talk more about new toys hitting shelves. Thank you guys for joining me. You are more than welcome. So until next time, true believers, make mine Marvelicious. Thank you for listening to this episode of Marvelicious Toys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help our show by leaving a positive review for the show on iTunes. There's even more Marvelicious content at our website, MarveliciousToys.com. At the site, you can see pictures of the products we discussed, find checklists for Marvel toys, talk and trade with the Marvelicious forums, and much more. It's all at MarveliciousToys.com. We want to hear your thoughts on Marvel collectibles. You can leave reports of your latest toy finds as well as product reviews on our voicemail at 803-MARVEL-4 or email an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at MarveliciousToys.com. Marvelicious Toys is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. Podcast enhancement by Barrett. Marvelicious website design by Jason. Graphic design by Justin. Announcements by Brock. The Marvelicious theme song, Bam Pow Kablam, is composed by Joe Harrison. See more of Joe's work at www.starwarsfanworks.com slash lionsmouth. If you also like Star Wars, Star Wars Collecting is covered weekly at our other podcast, Star Wars Action News, which you can find at swactionnews.com. Marvel Comics and all of the Marvel Multiverse contains are the intellectual property of Marvel Entertainment Incorporated, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Marvelicious Toys is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Even during halftime, halftime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she goes to these sporting events that have halftime during intermission. It was bad enough that they knew they couldn't put it on their own. Yeah, they actually did. It was on their own album and the Batman album. What album? No, you're wrong. It's not. <laughs> and verifying. You were wrong, and I will wait for you to accept that. <laughs> oh, I'm wrong. Yes. It was recorded for Zuropa and rejected. Mm. So they they decided not to put it on Zuropa and Zuropa is better for it. My apologies to our Mormon listeners. Oh wait, Mormons don't listen to us. But I think that it's a shame we could use a second wife or third, whatever. All the Marvel Star Wars Star Wars. (laughs) All the (laughs) that's a blooper.